My name is Charlie Chen. On today's podcast, we will be exploring Wab Canoe's book, The Reason You Walk. Before I start, I would like to make an Indigenous territory acknowledgement. As I have completed my high school English and social studies courses, I have learned a lot about Indigenous issues and about what Indigenous people have suffered through in the past due to colonialism, the Indian Act, and residential schools. Before I took these courses, I didn't know a lot about the Indigenous experience. A few years ago, I read Fatty Legs by Christy Jordan Fenton and Margaret Pokiak Fenton, which gave me my first understanding of the residential school experience. However, over the last two years, I have learned more about Indigenous cultures, languages, and what it means to be a residential school survivor, the effects of which are widespread and intergenerational. Reading a book such as The Reason You Walk by Wab Canoe has deepened my understanding of Indigenous issues even further and has made me more sensitive and respectful to the history of the land where I live and study, which, to be specific, are the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Reason You Walk by Wab Canoe is a memoir about Wab's relationship with his father, including details of his father's life, his later investment in truth and reconciliation, and of his death. We also learn about Wab's life story and how his father's residential school experience influenced him, despite the fact that he never attended a residential school himself. This is the intergenerational tragedy of residential schools, and Wob does an excellent job detailing exactly what took place, which is really important for those of us looking in from the outside. Residential schools started in Canada under Canada's first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. This is how Sir John A. Macdonald described the plan to members of Parliament to assimilate the next generation of Indigenous people into Canadian society in 1883. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages. He is surrounded by savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly pressed on myself as the head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. The Indian Act, which was first passed in 1876, dictated that every Indigenous child from ages 7 to 15 should attend a residential school. The purpose of this was very evident from the Prime Minister's words. The goal was cultural genocide. Residential schools were going to break Indigenous children's ties to their language and culture, and then they would be absorbed into mainstream Canadian society. This would eliminate the need for treaties, reserves, and special rights for Indigenous people, and therefore the Government of Canada would be absolved of its financial and legal obligations to Indigenous people.
Residential schools were funded by the Government of Canada and run by church organizations, including Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, and the United Church. To get more funding, Indian agents would go around seizing children from their homes and bring them to the residential schools. The schools themselves were usually dirty, unsanitary, and cold. The children didn't eat well and didn't get proper medical care when they got sick. Physical and sexual abuse were commonplace. It is unknown how many children died in residential schools because many records have been destroyed. This past year, 215 unmarked graves were found next to the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in Kamloops, BC. An additional 751 unmarked graves were found by the Cowessis First Nation in Saskatchewan, near the former Maryvale Indian Residential School, which was operated by the Roman Catholic Church from 1899 to the 1980s. Indigenous elders and most experts involved believe that these mass unmarked graves just scratch the surface of how many actually exist across the country, as the conditions in residential schools were consistently horrifying. The residential school Wabkanoo's father, Tobasonaquit, attended was the St. Mary's Indian Residential School outside Kenora, Ontario, which was run by the Catholic Church. No mass graves have officially been discovered there yet, but elders have been telling stories for decades about unmarked graves and the children who never came home from St. Mary's Residential School. When Tobasonaquit arrived at St. Mary's, his hair was cut short and he was raped by a nun. He was beaten for speaking his native language and for standing instead of kneeling beside his father's coffin. Experiencing and witnessing so much abuse was unbearable for Tobasonaquit, who turned to alcohol to self-medicate and lived an unstable life and became an abusive father. This is the way Wab describes his father's behavior towards him. When I did something wrong, I was yelled at for being stupid. When I got hurt and cried, I was yelled at for being weak. When I sat inside for too long, I was yelled at for being lazy. Every time he yelled at me, it only served to make me angry, and I learned to bury that anger inside me, just as he had once done. While he never hit me, I learned to fear Ndede, and I learned to hate him. This is the way the trauma of the residential school experience was passed on between Tobasonaquit and Wab. Tobasonaquit was treating Wab the way he was treated when he was growing up in residential school. He didn't have any other reference for a loving, caring relationship, so he yelled at Wab for everything he did wrong. Because Tobasonaquit had spent so many years being abused, he didn't know how to treat his son with kindness and patience. Because of this behavioral pattern, the relationship between Wab and Tobasonaquit suffered significant damage. 
In turn, Tobasonoquit's anger and abuse created a similar type of anger in Wop, who also admits to having that show up in his own parenting. If it hadn't been for Tobasonoquit taking the strong initiative later in his life to forgive those who abused him, chances are his relationship with Wob would never have healed. When Tobasonoquit is creating his survivor's account for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission back at the site of St. Mary's Residential School, he talks about the sadness he experienced being at the school. He and Wob reach a new understanding. Wob describes, We were overcoming something massive, the emotional, physical, and familial gulf confronting survivors who never learned how to parent their children, one of the worst legacies of the residential school system. This is a really important point in the story because it's when Wob truly understands what his father went through and he starts to forgive him for being abusive. Or at least, he understands why Tobasonoquit was like that. Because he had so much anger and sadness that had never been processed and were just a reflection of Tobasonoquit's suffering. Wob also makes the connection between his father's residential school experience and his abuse of alcohol and run-ins with the law. He explains, That void, that hole in our spirits that should be filled by love, is instead filled for too many young people by partying, violence, and other forms of destructive self-medication. When Wob is 18, he discovers drugs, alcohol, and partying. One night, after an incident of reckless drunk driving, Wob is arrested and spends some time in jail. It's Tobasonquit who bails him out and promises the judge to keep him on the straight and narrow. Tobasonquit brings Wob to the Sundance, his first time back in two years, and Wob is made a leader. I think this was the community's way of trying to re-engage Wob. Certainly, his behavior was not that of a leader, but the elders were giving him the honor to try to get him to live up to the values of being a leader, and I think this was a really important turning point in Wob's life. In Wob's words, I owed it to my family and community to pay back some of that good fortune by being a positive influence on those around me. I like to think that I have made them proud. I think this honor of being made a leader caused Wob to mature and take more responsibility for his actions. Wob was fully engaged at the annual Sundance, typically piercing two to three times per ceremony, and becoming involved in documenting and teaching the Anishinaabe language. In 2012, Tobasonoquit decides to adopt the Archbishop James Weisgerber. This adoption ceremony is the symbol of Tobasonoquit's own reconciliation and forgiveness of the Catholic Church. Tobasonoquit explains that he wants to forge a lasting bond between their families and their communities, demonstrating how indigenous culture offers a way forward in overcoming the pains of the past. At this point, Tobasonoquit has already been diagnosed with cancer, and he has been taking steps to forgive those who have caused him pain during his life. He explains to his children, I do not have much time left in this world. I can't be angry, 
I don't want to spend the rest of my time here being angry. I have to make things right. Not for those other people, but for me. I want to leave this world in a good way, so I am making things right with the church. I believe that it is Tobasonaquit's decision to forgive the Catholic Church and all the people who directly or indirectly caused him to suffer that initiated healing for himself, but more importantly for the generations after him, including Wab and his children. His suffering wasn't his fault and he had the right to be angry, but by choosing the path of forgiveness, he had the opportunity to give future generations permission to reconcile. After all, he was the one who went to residential school. And if he can forgive, then other people can forgive too, even though it may not be easy. I think it is very significant that Wab chooses to explain the meaning of the Anishinaabe traveling song, I Am the Reason You Walk, at the end of the chapter when Tobasaniquit adopts the Archbishop. As this is the critical moment of ceremony when Tobasonaquit's forgiveness is memorialized. Wab explains the song. The first meaning of I am the reason you walk is I have created you and therefore you walk. The second meaning is I am your motivation. The third meaning is I am that spark inside you called love, which animates you and allows you to live by the Anishinaabe values of Kije Watasi Wen. The fourth and final meaning is I am the destination at the end of your life that you are walking toward. In essence, the message of this song is that everyone should have empathy for themselves, other people, and the earth, and that when you leave this earth, you should leave only love. Wab summarizes this in his simple mourning words after his father dies. But then his time was up, and then he was gone. What's left behind? All that remains in the end is love. The love he had for us, the love we still have for him, and true love never dies. If Tobasonaquit hadn't forgiven the Catholic Church, I don't think his relationship with Wab would have recovered the way it did. Wab needed to experience his father's forgiveness of the church before he could consider forgiving his father for all he had put him through. However, by taking that almost surprising step of offering reconciliation and forgiveness to his abusers, Tobasonquit paved the way for others to forgive him for all the negative stuff he had done during his life and all the pain that he had caused to others. Therefore, I think that in the end, Tobasonquit got the best possible outcome. He forgave, he was forgiven, and he died being loved. I think he died in peace, knowing that he had walked through life with gifts from the Creator, and even though he didn't fully embrace the reason he walked until the very end of his life, in the end he does, and that endows the next generations with new hope and strength that comes from forgiveness. I don't think it was easy for Wab Canoe to write this book, but I think it's a really important book for Canadians to read to understand better what happened in residential schools and how that affects current and future generations of Indigenous families. Sometimes when we talk about residential schools or truth and reconciliation, it can seem really general, 
After all, there are two sides that don't completely understand each other, and several generations later, it can be hard to understand what is still happening as a result of the experience of someone's grandparents or great-grandparents. Wobb's book, Antobasanoquit's Journey of Forgiveness, gives a really clear picture of the pain and suffering caused at residential schools, as well as the intergenerational effects of those experiences. I think most residential school survivors probably die without forgiving those who abuse them. However, by putting Tobas Anoquit's life and choice to forgive in an honest, real context of their father-son relationship, I think Wab and Tobas Anoquit's story has the potential to help a lot of other Indigenous families on their paths to heal from the effects of residential schools. It can also help educate non-Indigenous people and help them become allies and supporters for equality and reconciliation with Indigenous communities. We all have a reason to walk, and Toba Sonequit has served as a role model that no matter what has happened to you in your life, you can always choose to forgive and you will be better off for it. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Bye!